This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, each year approximately 30,000 cases of Lyme disease are reported to the Centers for, for Disease Control by state health departments. However, this number does not reflect every case of Lyme disease that's diagnosed in the United States every year. The number has risen steadily since 1995, when there were only 11,700 confirmed cases. The disease and its treatments remain somewhat controversial, and here with the facts that you should know about Lyme disease are Dr. Caitlin Scarlett, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics specializing in rheumatology and integrative medicine, and Dr. Yana Shaw, Associate Professor of Pediatrics specializing in infectious diseases, both from Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming in to talk to us about this very important topic. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So, um... Dr. Shaw, let's start by defining what we mean when we say Lyme disease. What is it? Lyme disease is an infection. It's caused by a bacteria that's called Borrelia burgdorferi, and it's an illness that um, um, has somewhat predictable uh, uh, manifestation. It starts initially by somewhat nonspecific symptoms. Uh, in the very early uh, stages of infection, one cannot tell whether a patient has Lyme disease, but as the infection progresses, uh, um, the most characteristic feature is, is a rash. It's the bullseye rash that's typically referred to. If the infection is not treated at the early stages, the infection will spread, and some patients will develop multiple uh, circular uh, lesions. Uh, for some patients, the, the infection will go into the central nervous system and can cause uh, facial weakness, facial droop. It can cause inflammation of the brain or spinal cord, referred to as meningitis. In some patients, it does go into the heart and can cause cutitis or uh, symptoms of fast heart rate or passing out. Um, <clears throat> uh, one of the most common manifestations of Lyme disease is joint disease, which manif manifests not only by joint pain, but also joint swelling. So basically what has happened is a person has been exposed to a bacteria called Bacteria Borrelia burgdorferia, I guess and that's named after the person who actually founded it or discovered it. Um, but I think his name is Willy Bergdorfer, which is interesting. But what exactly is happening? That, the, how, how did they get the disease to begin with? I think most people know that there is an association mm -hmm. between the deer tick mm -hmm. and the disease. Tell that's, us a little bit that's more That's correct. That. So the infection is transmitted by ticks, deer ticks. Um, uh, our area, uh, New York, Connecticut, Maryland, uh, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, Northeast, uh, Mid-Atlantic, um, and Central Northern lesions are regions are particularly heavily infested with this bacteria, and the deer tick transmits the infection to humans. So the infection is transmitted upon the bite of a tick. Um, and, you know, the tick um, bite alone is not a risk um, for transmission. It's the length of the tick um, attachment that increases the risk of infection. So, in other words, if you were, if you were bitten and, and somehow saw the tick immediately and were able to either flick it off or remove it, the chances of transmission of the disease are far less. Probably zero. We actually, the studies have very uh, careful studies have looked at um, the risk of transmission with the time of attachment, and they did find out that you need at least 36 hours of the tick's attachment uh, to uh, to transmit the bacteria to humans. It's interesting because we were talking. You were mentioning where where the, it's most prevalent, and it's named 
the whole name is Lyme disease, and that's after basically Lyme, Connecticut, and that must have been a focus or a focal point where a lot of these um, cases were first discovered. Right. But so mostly yeah. it's found in the upper New Northeast and the upper mid in the Northeast and the upper Midwest mm -hmm. in this country at this point. Yes, yeah. Dr. Scarlett. Um, uh, Alan Steer was a doctor in Lyme, Connecticut, who um, initially discovered Lyme disease in a group of children, actually, that were thought to have one of the diseases I treat called juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Um, and he, there was a group of children, they thought they had this chronic arthritis, and he did some investigation and eventually discovered that they had this arthritis from Lyme disease. So in other words, that was how this, so it was thought of as more of a chronic disease initially, initially. from these arthritic symptoms, exactly. but they'd fi finally kind mm -hmm. of fine-tuned it down to that it was this bacterium that was infecting mm -hmm. people. So um, basically, at this point, what what are the things that basically what are the, the the most important things for people to know in terms of discovering Lyme disease on them? I mean, what kinds of symptoms should they be looking for? Because what you said initially is it is not always immediately apparent that someone has Lyme disease until the disease progresses. Well, that's problematic in that mm -hmm. once it progresses, there are obviously more greater consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would encourage parents who will find tick on their child or adults if they find tick um, uh, to gently remove it. Um, and CDC has excellent um, uh, information on how to remove, safely remove ticks. That you can but find online. Online, that's correct. However, uh, after that, you should uh, observe yourself carefully for symptoms um, such as rash. And I would like to remind the listeners the rash can be very faint. I had numerous um, uh, patients whose parents... Uh, um, obviously, we're very careful and uh, we're educated, we're looking for, but still would have missed the rash because. So it's not always, just to interrupt you, I'm sorry, but it's mm -hmm. not always that basically that red bullet type of like the target ads, mm -hmm. you know, with a real kind of bullseye. It can be something very more, much more subtle. Right. The, the, the rash can be very faint. It can have this salmon color appearance and um, it just can be a ring and the ring grows uh, bigger and it can get quite, quite extensive. So especially as children get older and they, they bathe themselves and parents do not get to get close inspection of their skin, um, it can easily be missed. In fact, 50% of patients who do have Lyme disease report never remembering having rash. So that's, that's, I think it Correct. leads to some of the big concern, Dr. Scarlett, in terms of this whole issue of certain symptoms showing up, like with these children at the very initial phase that you mentioned in Lyme, Connecticut. They showed symptoms. It was assumed it was something more of a chronic disease, and there was no an, an initial association between that and the disease right. of the bacterium. Right. The symptoms of Lyme disease can be very flu-like at first. So, um, yes, there is the rash, but I find that too, about 50% of patients, um, parents do not, you know, they never identify this rash, but the patients can have flu-like symptoms, aches and pains and, you know, feel fatigue, um, you know, in the days, even weeks after initial infection. Now, the signs of arthritis often come um, months, even years after the initial infection. I'm going to get to that in a minute, but how is this diagnosed then effectively? In other words, you already, um, Dr. Shaw mentioned that mm -hmm. it's 
somewhat hard to diagnose, can take quite a while to know that you really have it. So how is it definitively diagnosed? So as with any testing for Lyme disease, especially you want to make sure you're testing patients who are likely to have Lyme disease. So for example, if a patient has a facial droop or has meningitis or has arthritis, as Dr. Scarlett mentioned, we have ex ex excellent um, testing available to us. Uh, it's a blood draw that looks actually at the antibody productions at the body's immune responses to the bacteria. So we have those tests. There are some other uh, culture-based method and uh, sort of molecular PCR-based methods. All those tests are available to us, but the key uh, to remember for testing is just make sure we test patients who are likely to have Lyme disease. Why is that? Tell me more about because that. Because um, the tests are so sensitive that sometimes they can mislabel patients as having Lyme disease so when false, they actually false, false positive. positive. Correct. Correct. And, uh, you know, both Dr. Scarlett and myself, we have seen number of patients who were falsely labeled as having Lyme disease because they were tested at times where they should not have been tested, where they had these vague, uh, non-specific subjective symptoms uh, for months and years, and um, their laboratory testing was in, inaccurately interpreted as abnormal. For how long after the symptoms show would a test show positive, I guess is the question, and be accurately positive? I think this is where there's a cloud a little bit over the this disease because of the confusion in terms of when to test, when when it will show who to test, and what the potential for false positives. Mm -hmm. So in general, it takes at least four weeks uh, for the uh, laboratory testing to test positive. Um, at that time, if you have a facial droop or you have uh, joint disease, you have arthritis, at that time, person should be positive by testing. Plus, we have a, what's called two two-tier testing available. So when the screening test is positive, we run confirmatory testing. Is that the same test repeated or something different? It's something different. Um, that test actually looks at um, the, uh, looks at detailed at the antibodies that are produced by patients to make sure that we are actually um, dealing with a patient who has Lyme disease. So that's my question, I guess, Dr. Scarlett. Do you feel at this point we have the, the, the science in place to definitively diagnose someone as either having had Lyme or not? Absolutely, absolutely, I do. And that goes for um, patients who are presenting with symptoms earlier. You know, sometimes, as Dr. Shaw noted, it does take several weeks for the testing to become positive. So, you know, in very uh, limited circumstances, sometimes a patient will have to be tested again if it's been in that short window. Uh, but as she also noted, um, you should test patients, you know, appropriately choose who you test for this disease. But also patients who have uh, long-term late consequences of the Lyme disease, these tests adequately capture those patients. So let's say you've, you have symptoms months or years later are you saying at that point those antibodies will still be present in the blood? Yes, the long-term antibodies, if it's a late complication, such as the patients I often see, the patients with Lyme arthritis. So you can, at that later date, definitively diagnose it. Yes. That's very helpful information. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with pediatric rheumatologist, Dr. Caitlin Scarlett, and pediatric infectious disease specialist, Dr. Yana Shaw. And we're talking about Lyme disease. That gets me to the... Let, let me talk a little bit about this whole notion of prevention, because I, I want to take. I want you to take us through what happens when you find if a parent should, a parent or an individual should suspect that they've been bitten by a tick. But back up for a minute. It seems to me that prevention 
is probably the key to most of this with all of us living in a climate and an environment with so much, uh, so many ticks, deer ticks around. Tell us about what your thoughts are about prevention, either of you. Well, I think prevention is absolute key with this disease, especially as you just noted, in our area with, the, with our high um, deer population here. So it's very important for patients, for parents, um, you know, especially parents with small children, um, that they dress to make sure when they go out, you know, out into the yard, out into wooded areas that they wear, even in the summertime, you know, long sleeves, um, long pants, even though lightweight. And um, when they come back inside to check their body, do a full body check to look for any ticks. Um, because as Dr. Shaw noted, if you can you know, early um, identify a tick and remove it, then the likelihood of the transmission is, you know, basically zero percent. So let's take that through, let's take us through the steps. Let's say um, I'm out in the yard with my child, I, I come in and I find that there's a tick. It's quite small, it's not swollen, it's, it does, I, I can be sure that I bathed them a night before and I didn't see it then. So I know that it's a fairly recent phenomenon. So what is the recommendation at that point? You take it off carefully. Go on. Yeah, I would Shaw. take tweezers and you want to grab the tick at the very bottom by close to the skin and gently pull up. You don't want to apply nail polish. You don't want to burn off the ticks. You don't want to choke them. Those are all uh, methods that actually can stress the tick and that, at that time it may um, expel the bacteria into your skin. So just a gentle pull uh, with the tweezers and uh, cleaning um, the skin with alcohol afterwards is all that is needed. But is it necessary at that point to have the tick tested, for example? I mean, these are some things that I've heard in the kind of general you know, atmosphere. Is it important to somehow then send the tick to a lab? Is it important at that point to see your physician, get some blood testing? What's no, ab absolutely not. Not if you've found a tick and you're sure that it wasn't on for the, you know, the 24 to 36 hours. But I would definitely watch, um, you know, watch the child very closely. And, you know, just in case, look for the rash, look for flu-like symptoms, and um, just be aware that if any of these you know, symptoms do occur, then you can call your, your primary care physician. So at that point, what you're suggesting is treatment is not necessary at that moment in time. No, absolutely not. So then what are the treatments and when are they appropriate, Dr. Shaw? So uh, the treatment for Lyme disease consists of antibiotics. Um, the antibiotics that are extremely effective in uh, treating this infection, this bacteria, let's remember, you know, comes from uh, ticks and deers, um, animals that are insects that are not typically fed antibiotics, so we really don't see any resistance. So um, they can be very effectively they're killed. They're very effectively killed, and um, especially with children, which is the population that we treat. Um, I've uh, personally had a lot of um, excellent experience with treating Lyme disease. So the commonly used antibiotics, amoxicillin, doxycycline, cefuroxime, um, are, are effective. Um, and um, children recover uh, nicely and have excellent prognosis. And what, what kind of a term of antibiotics are you using? To uh, treat it. So they are, uh, depending on what type, where the infection is, we would use oral antibiotics, or if you catch the infection in uh, the heart or in the central nervous system, we would use uh, parenteral IV antibiotics. So IV, basically IV. putting it into the bloodstream. But how long, and again, is all that dependent on the individual symptoms? It yes. depends on the site of infection, two to four weeks. So when you say it's effective, does it reverse? I mean, I understand it's effective in killing the bacteria, 
but when you've had it go on perhaps for a while, Dr. Scarlett, and I don't mean months and months, but even for a period of time, enough so that it's somehow finding its way to other organs in the body or creating uh, some kind of rheumatism or, or um, arthritis, are, are, does the treatment reverse these symptoms? Yes, absolutely. In most of the cases, the treatment does reverse these symptoms, even with the late-term arthritis that I often see in my clinic. And, um, you know, we use the same antibiotics, amoxicillin, doxycycline, um, and generally the treatment time period depends on, like Dr. Shaw said, you know, what symptoms are involved. So with arthritis, for example, we start off with four weeks of antibiotic therapy in conjunction with an anti-inflammatory usually. And I have wonderful results with that um, you know, with, with that treatment regimen with these patients with arthritis. So where is all the controversy around this notion of chronic Lyme disease? Does it exist? In other words, are there sequelae? Do people continue after being treated? Let's say it's been diagnosed appropriately, definitively diagnosed, they've been given treatment. Do they continue to suffer with symptoms? And if so, why? So very small proportion of patients who had Lyme disease um, and were appropriately treated will go on having uh, what we call subjective symptoms. They will feel tired, they will have joint pain, not necessarily swelling, but pain. And that uh, those complaints or symptoms will last for months. Um, you know, at this point, we do not understand what causes those symptoms. Um, there are some hypotheses out there that believe that this might be body's response to the treated infection. Um, and uh, those symptoms um, do not benefit from additional antibiotic therapy. So uh, we strongly discourage repeated courses of antibiotics because carefully designed studies have looked at it and uh, found that they are not effective. And in fact, they actually distract us from the appropriate treatment, which is a supportive care, symptomatic care, which Dr. Scarlett um, actually helps us with. Now, you've seen a number of cases of this where these symptoms have continued on after a successful course of treatment. Yes. Let me ask you this. Do you check? Do you do that kind of blood test following a course of treatment to determine if in fact, you've killed the bacteria? No, because um, all of the re research shows that with these appropriate treatments, the bacteria are gone and you know the Lyme is treated. Now, we do see in a small percentage of these patients, these sy symptoms linger. So as Dr. Shaw said, you know sometimes we have these patients with lingering arthralgia, which is subjective joint pain, or myalgia, muscle pain, or headaches, or fatigue. And in those cases, um, you know, it's not an actual chronic Lyme disease, that, that term is out there in the uh, re regard that it's not a chronic infection. But there, I do think that there is this syndrome, like um, in the literature, it's coined post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. And it's very much like amplified pain syndrome. That's a pain syndrome that I see in a lot of my patients that sometimes it, it occurs after, you know, and some kind of inflammation in the body and that's treated. And then these patients go on to have pain syndromes. And sometimes it's, you know, pain syndromes from something else, from, you know, uh, a, a psychiatric reason or a psychosomatic reason. And um, the treatment in those patients is, it is important because these patients do go on to have these symptoms. And I treat them in a very integrative approach. So things like um, manual medicine, so um, uh, things like physical therapy, occupational therapy, exercise, even osteopathy. 
Um, you know, mind-body medicine is very important in this treatment for these patients. So things like, you know, yoga, uh, relaxation techniques with visual imagery, meditation is very important. Even things such as acupuncture and aromatherapy helps in these cases, as well as counseling. That's a very big part of it. Um, but so, I'm not saying that these symptoms aren't there. They're just not from an active disease. It's very important that we recognize that these patients have these symptoms and treat them appropriately, but they don't need to be on these long term antibiotic therapies. And Dr. And Shaw and I have both seen patients that um, have been either diagnosed appropriately and treated for Lyme disease, but for some reason are on long-term antibiotics, um, you know, for the notion of they think they were told that they have chronic Lyme disease because they have these lingering symptoms, or even patients that were misdiagnosed with Lyme disease that are on long-term, I mean, months and months and months of antibiotic therapies. That's um, it's inappropriate because there are um, there are risks to being on antibiotics, and these patients they're not getting better on these long-term antibiotics. I think that's a key point, and I don't want to run out of time. So just to summarize, what I guess I'm hearing is prevention, if at all possible. Early diagnosis, or as early as possible, being aware of the symptoms, checking it out, getting appropriate treatment, and if you should experience longer-term symptoms, there are methodologies such as integrative medicine, other ways to somehow treat those symptoms, but it's not long-term antibiotic therapy. Absolutely. Am I correct? Yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's a very interesting and complex topic. Thank you both so much for coming in. My guests have been Dr. Caitlin Scarlett, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics specializing in rheumatology, and Dr. Yana Shaw, Associate Professor of Pediatrics specializing in infectious diseases at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.